I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. so long no one wants to hear it anymore hey we, we need to mention uh amazon smile benevity cyber grants just giving and guide star tell tell us a little bit about that real quick yeah so okay first of all amazon smile is where um the libertarian institute is registered we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're registered with amazon <coughs> smile and that means so that whenever you um go through smile.amazon.com and choose the libertarian institute as your favorite nonprofit. um organization there then we get a little bit of a cut from their end of the sale from whatever you buy there as long as you're on smile.amazon.com and signed up for the institute Mm -hmm. and so that's a great way to help support and then those other things you listed there are um benevity and uh just giving and let me see i have the list here guides um guide star and cyber grants is what you sent me yeah there you go so all these are um, they're organizations that essentially are clearing houses for corporations who provide um, matching funds to uh, their employees' donations to nonprofit institutions. So, in other words, you take a company like Benevity, what they do is they go to Apple or Verizon or uh, General Motors or whoever and they say, hey, Instead of having an expensive department where you find what charities are acceptable to you, you just come to us and we will only list guys that we have vetted that you can feel comfortable doing matching funds for. And then your employees, when they want to donate to any of these things, you give matching funds and uh, you'll know that it's all right to do so. And so then they do all the vetting themselves. And so that's essentially what all of these things are is if you have a corporate job, and your uh, company has a matching funds type of a function, then um, what you do is you, you uh, I guess, have them check with whichever company they use, Just Giving or Benevity or the others, and see if we're registered with them. And then, like you were just saying, we are. So um, that means then you can double all your donations to the Libertarian Institute uh, and make your boss uh, donate to us too. So that's pretty good. And uh, it is our big fund drive, you know, for the from now until the end of the year. We're trying to raise enough money to, you know, really have a great start for the first year of the next decade here and really get the Libertarian Institute off on the right foot and, um, and make a stronger institute, better writers, new website, events, New books. Sheldon's working on a book. 
Thomas Edlam is working on a new Will Grigg book. Mm. I'm working on a book. Um, all these will be coming out in the next year. And um, hopefully we'll be doing events and doing everything we can to grow this institute for you. And so uh, it's our big fun drive. It's right at the top of the page today at libertarianinstitute.org. And uh, always at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And we have books and audio books and all kinds of great uh, gifts and premiums and kickbacks uh, for people who donate as well. So that's all at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And thanks for letting me say that. Yeah. This will be the uh, first part of a two-part interview that I conducted with Scott Horton a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we get into Ukraine, Russia, Iran, Yemen in this interview and uh it's going to end a little abruptly but that's okay we're going to be picking up the rest of the interview a little bit later on in the week uh probably on thursday i'll i'll put that second part of the interview out uh as usual scott and i got on the phone and we talked all the good stuff for the hour and a half prior to recording but that's all right um we there's going to be some good information in here i wanted to I wanted to show how American primacy and containment of uh, who the U.S. government views as our enemies is the ultimate priority here in, in what's going on with Ukraine, Russia, and the Middle East. So, enjoy. <laughs> I'm here with Scott Horton. What's up, Scott? Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm doing well. Uh, well, I wanted to get you on, man. I want to talk about this whole Ukraine, Russia, and all the ties and and all the background on what's happening here and what 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 we're seeing that's not being reported in the media. So, how did all this get started? Let's just start there. How did how did Ukraine pop up in American news? Well, in the current iteration, what it is is that they played a role in the 2016 election uh, in surfacing the at least alleged Manafort uh, ledger Mm -hmm. that got him removed from Trump's campaign. And uh, I guess there had been some opposition research done by the Democrats there. And so that was part of the story about why Donald Trump was saying to uh, on the phone and had you know Giuliani and people in his government uh, talking with the current government of Ukraine and saying he wanted them to look into the role of any Ukrainians uh, that they may have played in the election of 2016. And so that's the one part of it. And then the other is he brings up uh, the canceled investigation into the company the the giant ukrainian gas firm burisma and the presence of hunter biden on the board there now of course trump sort of george w bushian character in his language kind of just speaks in these halting half sentences and he doesn't really make any specific ask there's not an exact quid pro quo in there um although it's pretty close um and you know the construct apparently from the witnesses is that you know, this was something that Trump was getting done through his lawyer, Giuliani, was trying to get done to get the Ukrainians to investigate um, both of these issues. And then the idea was that 
if they would, then they would get their weapons that Trump was deciding to hold up. And uh, then Zelensky might get a White House visit. So there was, um, you know, a carrot and a stick kind of a thing there. Stick and a carrot. I guess I said them backwards, didn't I? But yeah. anyway. Um, and so um, then there, you know, this turned into an impeachment scandal because a CIA analyst on the National Security Council overheard this and then went to the Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee and said, hey, would you like to make an impeachment out of this? And they said, yeah. <laughs> so he wrote up a brief and uh, turned this thing into the inspector general of, or <clears throat> I think the inspector general of the, or, or not, not the inspector general, but first just the director of national intelligence, who I think kicked it back and then eventually it made it to the House. And um, this is uh, Eric Sharamella is his name, the famous whistleblower. It's not, I guess it hasn't been confirmed, but it's never been disputed and his name has been out there for weeks and it was reported long before his name was reported that everyone in Washington already knew who it was. It was the kind of secret that, you know, tens of thousands of them were keeping from the rest of us in the country somehow for some reason. We're supposed to treat this guy's name like sacred property. Like, how dare you invoke it because you could get him in danger or some kind of ridiculous thing. Like, his name's been published. It's out there right now. It's published all over the place, except in the places where it's not, where there's this, you know, moray being enforced or something. It's ridiculous, this whole thing, um, the way they built it up. And so, but the deal is, I guess to boil it down, is Trump is seemingly guilty of some kind of pressure on them to do one thing that's very legitimate, look into their interference on Hillary's behalf in the election of 2016, and the other, which is, you got to admit, semi-legitimate, which is bringing up the obvious corruption involved in Hunter Biden, the former vice president's son, sitting on the board of directors of this gas firm when he knows nothing about Ukraine and nothing about gas and nothing about the laws concerning Ukrainian gas or any such thing, and is being paid $83,000 a month by this company uh, in order to sit on that board, in order to, at the very least, curry some kind of favor with the American government, money which Hunter Biden was wasting all on crack and horse as he was cheating with the widow of his dead brother that he was uh, you know, messing around with at the time and impregnating uh, Arkansas strippers at a Washington, D.C. Uh, club where he was uh, known to smoke crack, mm -hmm. according to all non-contradicted reports out there. Yeah. And so anyway, the, the narrative is that all of that is none of your business and all that is none of Trump's business. And that how dare he have the slightest interest in seeing the Ukrainian government look at uh, Joe Biden's son and this whole conflict of interest going on there when, after all, Biden is the front runner on the Democrat side and has been for months here. And that seems like a political kind of intervention there. And so the Democrats who completely failed to, uh, you know, impeach and remove the president or even try uh to impeach or remove the president over the fake Russia allegations, which you might remember for years, they tried to claim, the CIA, the FBI, and the Democrats, and the media, tried to claim that Donald Trump was guilty of high treason 
that he had made a deal with the Kremlin to steal the election of 2016, which was completely ridiculous and fake and always was and based on no true things really whatsoever. Um, the only factoids in play are completely twisted out of all recognition, like a troll farm, uh, you know, uh, fishing for clicks to make a little bit of money all of a sudden or a giant KGB plot to brainwash you into not liking Hillary Clinton, even though you liked her all along. We know you did <coughs> something. Uh, it's completely crazy conspiracy theory, ridiculous garbage uh, that they push. But now that that's gone, they're essentially going with the, hey, anything we can strategy. And I think it's fair to presume, I don't think this is an established fact, and I don't know if it ever even could be, although I guess it's possible in, you know, some crazy universe where you would have a real investigation to get to the very bottom of all of this stuff. But I think it must be presumed that the so-called whistleblower here, Cheramella, was sent there for the purpose of finding dirt on this president. Wait around, it won't take too long for him to do something, to step on his own tie <clears throat> again, and to get him in trouble over it, to drum up a thing. And here, this is close enough, looks like political, you know, personal, partisan political uh, activity in, you know, interfering in our sacred Ukraine policy of selling them weapons at all times and never doing such a sinful and horrible thing as to hold up those weapon sales for even a day for any reason, which is a huge part of the whole, and, and is for people who are stuck on the Democrat, uh, you know, Republican aspect of this, you zoom out a little bit, it's not that much of a coincidence that the thing that they're ratting on him for is not just a case of political, you know, something or other here, there, or another place. It's all wrapped up in America's policy toward Russia mm -hmm. and America's policy toward Ukraine toward that end mm -hmm. well, of the new Cold War. Well, and and that's why they hated Trump in the first place. That's why they framed him up for Russiagate in the first place. And that's why, if you listen to all the witnesses testifying against him in the impeachment hearings, this is what they cannot stand about him now, is that he would dare, the elected president of the United States, would dare to have the temerity to tell, you know, Hillary Clinton's leftovers at the State Department and the permanent government, the CIA and, you know, the other intelligence uh, agencies and state, etc., that they can't have their Cold War and that he doesn't agree with their policy on Ukraine. Right. As Vincent said, hey, this all went through the interagency. This is America's policy. In other words, the deputies committee met and the deputies committee of the National Security Council decided. And how dare the president of the United States think that he has the right to hold up this policy for one instant? Who the hell does this freak think he is to intervene with their sacred order this way? And that's how democracy is done, according to the colonel. It's decided in the interagency, you see. Right. Well, and, and these people, the media especially, but, but even even when you watch these hearings, which I watched, I don't know, too many hours of it, um, really didn't watch it. I listened to it while I was driving, and it was freaking mind-numbing. But um, the, they, they don't ever actually like talk about what this is all about. 
you'll get like hints like Vindman was he hinted that well when he was asked to uh get back involved with the nsc that his he he, his requirement was well if the policy changes i'm out like that's it i'm not doing this shit anymore and when you start looking at the more geopolitical um, views of what was happening and why changing the policy would make a difference, it brings you into the coup of 2014 and then the placement of, of Hunter Biden on Burisma, you can start seeing how what it was was the, the use of the United States trying to utilize the Ukrainian Uzbekistani relationship, kinship together within the CIS to to block Russian supremacy in the in the Balkans. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Well, honestly, I'm not the uh, best person to explain the northern stream and the southern stream and the names and the exact roots of the different pipelines. Um, that's a place where I really am uh, lacking there. I have done a few interviews on that topic, on that topic, including with Nabojsa Malich, mm-hmm. uh, who used to write for us for many years at antiwar.com and is now with RT. <coughs> so people can go back and listen to that. But, you know, I think the more important point there, besides blocking the pipelines, is the Americans really wanted to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval, naval base on the Crimean Peninsula and deprive them of their warm water port and direct access to the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Right. And um, so this is, you know, as they put it in the terms of geopolitics, meaning not just international politics, but meaning the politics of geography mm-hmm. and what is where and how do you get to the ocean from here and this kind of thing um, that which also has a lot to do with pipeline routes of course as well right um, but that in the scheme of things as they put it with Crimea Russia is a regional power at mm. least and not really a world power but they're a regional power right. but without Crimea and access to the Black Sea and that warm water port then they're really just a nation state and they don't really have the ability to project power which by project power, they got a couple of battleships and one old diesel aircraft carrier. They don't have any ability to project power anyway. Um, if that means the ability to trade and make money and not be you know, completely isolated from the rest of mankind, okay. But you know, the Americans, of course, the ability to resist in any way is always a threat to them. And so, you know, the... The Soviet Union, notwithstanding, the Cold War must continue to be fought, and Russian power must be must continue to be contained and rolled back whenever and wherever possible. And so, Bill Clinton started this in the 1990s with NATO expansion. George W. Bush, uh, you know, expanded it much further. And Barack Obama and Donald Trump both also have expanded it. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't know the the numbers for each president, but I know that it's something like 17 nations now in Eastern Europe. Almost all of Eastern Europe are members of, including the Balkans, are members of NATO now. And even under Trump, he added Macedonia and um, 
Montenegro. Right. And, uh, you know, under, I think it was actually under Bush, where they included the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia directly on Russia's borders. At the same time, in the Bush years, they launched, you know, people were really distracted by the horrible war in Iraq, but they launched these color-coded revolutions, they were called, the CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy, Mm -hmm. in league with, you know, certain corporate oligarch types like George Soros and, uh, you know, quite a few others, I Mm -hmm. guess. Yeah. Um, These governmental organizations, they financed these coups really started in the Clinton years. You had the Rose Revolution in Georgia, the, I forgot what they called the one in uh, Serbia against Milosevic. In Georgia, they got rid of Shevardnadze uh, in favor of um, old uh, uh, Shakashvili, Mikhail Shakashvili. And then in uh, Serbia, they got rid of Milosevic, and I forget the name of the guy they put in power there. They tried to do the Blue Jeans Revolution or Denim Revolution in um, in Belarus, which failed. Mm-hmm. They did the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, mm-hmm. which succeeded in basically forcing a new election that was uh, you know, rigged for the Western-favored candidate right. against the Russian-favored candidate on false accusations of a rigged election the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you had uh, the Tulip Revolution. It was At one time it was yellow and pink, or both, one or the other, in Tajikistan, of all places, where America had a military base and were you know, picking and choosing winners between the different factions there. Mm-hmm. They had the Cedar Revolution, on which failed again when the pro-Hezbollah and pro-Christian forces came out and faced them down, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, which things are cracking up now again. Uh, and then, I'm sorry, there were more. I forget them all. There were, you know, a bunch of these. Uh, Justin Romando called it the Ukrainian template. Yeah. Uh, these color-coded revolution. And uh, the one that they did in Ukraine in 2014, it was the same guy they were overthrowing, Yanukovych. Yeah. Who was uh, essentially the, the candidate of the pro-Russia-leaning, you know, eastern half of the country. Right. And it's a very divided country by language and supposed ethnicity. I don't know what the ethnic difference really is, but um, it's Russia speakers from Odessa East and then predominantly Ukrainian speakers to the West. Right. And, you know, during Soviet times, they forced everybody to speak Russian. So, so everybody in the big cities all spoke Russian, essentially, and you could only hear Ukrainian kind of out in the countryside and stuff. I guess Ukrainians made a big comeback in the west of the country and i think a big part of the reason there are so many russians in the country is because they were moved there by stalin right uh, during the days of the soviet union and i think even before world war ii um so there's you know all kinds of relatively ancient resents uh, resentments here and and going back a long way but so uh, what happened was it all came to the head to a head in november of uh, 2013, mm-hmm. when the Americans and the the Europeans and the IMF were insisting that the Ukrainians sign this new trade deal with the EU that included all this austerity, meaning cuts to services for the poor and, you know, subsidies and this kind of thing, mm-hmm. and um, that they would have to take on this $15 billion debt to the IMF and all this stuff. And then Yanukovych said he felt like a bride who was presented with a prenuptial agreement at her wedding and how he kind of doesn't feel like marrying you now anyway. And that when the, the prenup was that not only all these conditions of austerity and debt, but 
you are also forbidden from making a trade deal with the Russians. You yeah. can only have the EU deal, not both. Right. And Putin said, well, I'll give you some money. Never mind a giant loan. Um, I, won't, I don't think it was $15 billion, but it was still some, and it was free. He said, I'll give you some money, and I don't care if you sign a deal with the EU. We just want to have a deal with you, too. Right. And, and no restrictions, none of this crazy stuff about austerity and whatever. And so, you know, this is the guy who was kind of the pro-Russia-leaning um, guy anyway. And it very well could be, honestly, Tommy, I don't know. But I think it could be that they deliberately were ratcheting up their demands in order to provoke his rejection. It would not have been that hard to accomplish, and it ain't that hard to imagine that they might have very well done that on purpose in order to get him to reject, to go ahead and reject the deal if they decided he was going to be a pain for whatever other reason and go ahead and have another revolution. And certainly, um, almost immediately, not because they really, I think, wanted to be with the EU so bad, but because they were really rejecting Russian power and influence. People turn out in the streets in Kiev, which is the capital city, which is in the far west of the country, mm -hmm. and um, where it's very much the pro-Ukrainian-speaking you know, uh, nationalist types. And so um, then they stayed in the streets, and they were clearly well-financed to stay in the streets and stay fed and hold all these concerts and all of these things in order to keep everybody out there. And this is the Ukrainian template is essentially, in this case, they weren't disputing an election. He was elected fair and square. and Nobody disputed that. Um, the last time around, the EU had overseen the whole thing and everything. Right. And but they just stayed out there essentially uh, on that same kind of model, refusing to accept, uh, you know, in that essentially not my president, but really meaning it and essentially grinding the capital city to a standstill mm -hmm. and refusing to let this guy be the president. Mm -hmm. And then they made a deal for um, new elections would be held early in November. And I think he even agreed that he wouldn't be in them. Yeah. You know, let him keep power till then. I'm not sure about that last part. Um, but certainly then, you know, the, the uh, protesters were supposed to pull back, which was not going to happen because they were led by the right sector and other neo-Nazi groups who had no intention whatsoever of compromising or going along with any deal for new elections here. And so as soon as the police lived up to their side of the deal and pulled back, then the Nazis just seized all the government buildings and the president had to flee. So it was an American backstreet putsch, uh, essentially, was right. how it worked. And, um, and everybody knew it. I mean, there's great footage of Ron Paul on um, the, it was a Fox News show. I forgot what it was called, but it was like young libertarians. Matt Welch and Kennedy and a couple of other libertarians hosted it. And they say, geez, Ron Paul, I can't believe that you're saying that there's a coup going on in Ukraine. Why are you saying that there's a coup going on in Ukraine? And Ron Paul goes, because there is a coup going on in Ukraine. I mean, just look at what's happening here. And then it was like the next day or the day, you know, two days later is when the president fled. And the Nazis took over the buildings and ran them out of town. Right. And and then from there, um, they outlawed Russian as a second language, even yeah. though you're talking half the population of the yeah. country. It's their primary language. But outlawed official recognition of Russian, which was not a, really all that consequential. I guess it could have meant all government documents were going to be in Ukrainian from then on or something like that. But really was just an affront to all of the, you know, Russian-leaning people who had supported this guy for president and all that kind of thing. 
And then they had proposed, um, the new government was already proposing kicking the Russians out of Sevastopol. And so, so Crimea is the Crimean Peninsula uh, sticking out down, down there south of Ukraine into the Black Sea, but it has never really belonged to Ukraine such as, you know, Ukraine has ever been a nation state or its own real region. And in fact, it belonged to the Turks, and then the Russians bought it slash kind of stole it from them in the 1780s when America was still under the Articles of Confederation and, you know, had not yet incorporated Alabama into the Union. Well, <laughs> um, you know, uh, or Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, before George Washington sat at the Constitutional Convention. And so they bought it then, and it was always a Russian base, uh, and a Russian-populated uh, area. There's, I think, 10% of them are Tatars, uh, Tatars, who are Turkic descendants uh, from the old days there. But it's like 90% Russian. And um, what happened was in 1954, um, Khrushchev, who was the premier of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, made an edict one night. And it was, you know, he was Ukrainian, and after Stalin died, he needed the Ukrainian Communist Party's help in his rise to power. And so he did them a favor and said that Crimea now belonged to them. But essentially, this was just symbolic, right? Because they were all answerable only to the Kremlin anyway. And it was a distinction really without a difference. Then when the Soviet Union broke up, uh, they decided that, you know what, fine, you guys can keep the, um, the peninsula. But everybody promises to essentially accept and keep the status quo, which included the Russians keeping their naval base there. And in fact, there was an interview of Putin where he says something about, listen, we thought about how nice it would be to go and visit our friends in NATO's navies uh, down there at the Sevastopol naval base. And how that would be really nice. But then we thought that we would like it even better if we would just keep the base and they would come and visit us. <laughs> In other words, yeah, no, you can't have my Navy base. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm not giving it to you. And then, so, and this is like something that sounds made up, maybe, but it's absolutely true. Double, triple check me. Not one person died when Russia so called invaded Crimea. All they did was. Their troops, I guess their marines essentially, left their base, walked outside and stood on street corners and said, see these boots on ground? Apparently this is our ground now again and not yours. And the only shots that were fired, I saw them on Twitter video back then, uh, people were tweeting them around and here it was, the only shots that were fired were fired at a distance of a couple of hundred feet in the air, high in the air, over the heads of some Ukrainian soldiers. Pow, pow! Hey, man, take me seriously. When I say you guys should just turn around and leave here now. Yeah. And then they say, okay, that sounds like sound advice to us. I'm roughly translating from the Ukrainian I don't speak, but that was basically <laughs> the, uh, or the Russian either. Uh, but that was the uh, subtext of the conversation there. It was like, well, you guys don't want to get shot, right? And we don't want to shoot you, so how about you just turn around and stop pretending to be the government of this land you're not the government of anymore. And then that was it. And the conversation was over and that not one person was shot to death. Not one single person was killed. And they talk about this, oh, the Russian seizure of Crimea. And you're supposed to imagine this massive massacre or whatever. But meanwhile, 
Crimea belongs to Russia like Massachusetts belongs to the USA. Right. This whole thing is completely stupid. Okay. You know, the, the premise of the entire thing is, oh, yeah, no, because everybody knows that the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union that doesn't exist anymore, his spoken word from 1954 is sacred law. And America might break off South Sudan from Sudan if they want it. And they might break off Kosovo from Serbia if they want it. But, oh, for the Russians to take back their own damn peninsula while the from the Americans who were in the middle of trying to steal it from them. Oh, my goodness. What a horrible, aggressive invasion and affront to our liberal rules-based world order. Ah. Well, sorry, I've been no, that, everybody's ears so bad. I should not no, it's, act out it's, the bad guy's point of view, but that's it. You know, that's what you're supposed to think about that. It's irritating because they think we're all stupid, but they, but again, like, like I said earlier, they only give like half the story. They don't give any, you know, historical evidence or any, any historical precedent, like what you're laying out here. So, so it makes sense when when and you like. And one more thing too, because I don't want to make I want to make sure not skip it before we move on from the conversation, which is that then a fight broke out, a real bad fight broke out in the east of Ukraine, and that was because essentially the people, the the hardest core supporters of the Party of Regions that had the previous president Yanukovych had belonged to, mm-hmm. said, "Well, hey, if you guys can seize the buildings and take over the government, well, we can seize the buildings in our part of the country and refuse to recognize." The new government, right? Which, I'll, after all, he, Yanukovych has stood for election. These guys did a violent street putsch. Uh-huh. You know, they held an election afterwards, but of course, the East was excluded from it. So, what the hell kind of election is that? It's not one at all. Exactly. And they said, "Okay, well, we don't recognize the new coup d'état junta." Mm-hmm. And the new prime minister and Yatsenuk, Arseny Yatsenuk, and the new president Poroshenko declared a war on terrorism and sent tanks and Nazi fighters to go and invade and conquer the East. The Donbass region, they call it, Donetsk and Luhansk, are the two, I guess, major counties there, as we would conceive them uh, as Texans, you know, Mm -hmm. as something approximating uh, these major counties. And they're right on the border there. And they fought like hell, and they had a war that killed 10,000 or more people there. I think it's clear it's more than 10,000 people died in the thing. And the worst that the Russians did was help these people defend themselves. Mm-hmm. That, you know what they did was they were not the aggressors there. They came, and you might have heard a million times on TV that they invaded Ukraine. Well, what kind of a hoax? I'm so sick of people falling for these people's hoaxes. Oh, they said some. Oh, the U.S. government and TV, they made a claim, did they? Oh, okay. Well, I guess you better just take that at face value then, huh? Oh, they're accusing the Russians of starting a war, are they? Well, you better not actually learn anything about it. Just take whatever they say at face value. Why not? It's not like they lie about every single thing they ever said in their lives to you and your life that you heard from them. Mm. But anyway, all they did was send across special operations guys to defend these, this region from attack by its quote-unquote own government. Right. Well, they, I- they never sent the infantry across. I think in a couple of cases they sent some tanks across. But they never sent the infantry across, and they certainly – I think we all know that despite the devastation of the Russian military after the fall of the Soviet Union and their, their you know, hefty diminishment, uh, whatever you call it, complete 
destruction from what they had once been. There's no question that with conventional material only, that they could march all the way to Kiev and conquer the whole country of Ukraine in one week. Right. If that was what they were stupid enough to want to try to do. Well, yeah, if that was their goal. Everybody knows that. The Russians could crush Ukraine's military in an instant. Yep. Okay? If they wanted to seize eastern Ukraine, all they had to do was say that eastern Ukraine is Russian again. How do you like that? Donetsk is now a province in the Federation. What are you going to do about it? And they would have done nothing but cuss and spit and said terrible things, and then that would have been the end of that. But instead, Putin didn't do that. And in fact, the people of Donetsk and Luhansk held a plebiscite, which was a legitimate referendum for their own area. They weren't speaking for all of Ukraine or all of even the east. They weren't claiming to speak for the people of Odessa, you know, which is to the west of the Crimean Peninsula, although it's still, I think, broadly considered part of eastern Ukraine. They weren't claiming that. They were just saying for their very far eastern districts, they all voted, can we please join the Russian Federation? We want to. And Putin told them no. Yeah. He didn't want to absorb them into the Russian Federation. That would just mean more pensions he's got to pay and not enough revenue that he's going to get out of it. Right. All the industry in eastern Ukraine had all been run into the ground as hell by then. It would have been a huge net loss for Vladimir Putin to do so. You know, this crazy madman, czar, Stalin, whatever, <laughs> the terrible, who wants to reconquer all of eastern Europe. Yeah. Well, and it was... Well, where's the evidence of that? Have you... I, did you watch Ukraine on fire? I did. And and uh, there, there's a sequel to it, too. I'm sorry, I forget the name of it. Revealing They're Ukraine. They're both really great. Revealing Ukraine, yeah, I watched both of them. Um, right, right. One of the things that stuck out to me with all, everything you're just saying, saying here, and I think that people may not know or understand, is whenever Oliver Stone was actually talking to to Putin, Putin had made a comment that he said, "Look, Russia and Ukraine are all one people. We're the we're not. There's no distinguishing us. We're all one people, you know. And so you would have to you would have to." expect you know it would be the equivalent of um you know texas invading oklahoma you know he's looking at it he's saying yeah i don't really want to invade y'all i just i don't want to conquer you i don't want to kill you i don't want to fight you i you're my you know especially the eastern ukraine where they're russian they're more russian culturally he's just kind of like look let us have our naval base, you know? And and that's when Don Bass was like, well, yeah, we want to secede and be part of Russia too. And he was like, no, 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 no. And, you know, so, but at the same time, he's not trying to to kill Ukrainians. That's not his goal. He, he looks at them as his own countrymen. And look, what this is all about is the idea of eventually bringing Ukraine into NATO, which... You'd have to be part of this sort of social circle of people to think that that's acceptable or more importantly to think that you better not challenge the idea that this is what we all believe because everybody's going to really look at you funny and you're not going to be invited to the next cocktail party and the next think tank council meeting thing. And so maybe just go along with the idea that, yeah, sure, why not? I don't know, man. I think think Americans. I know. Let's do it. How about a coup in Belarus? And we'll bring Belarus into NATO too. Do you want to have a hydrogen bomb war where we all die? 
You know, there's a today the picture story on antiwar.com is Mikhail Gorbachev saying, listen, we are in danger of having a hot war between America and Russia. Here's the thing I like to say that I don't ever hear people talk about this. I think it's important. Okay. Everybody knows that America and Russia have Mm H-bombs, obviously. That's no secret. That's the whole point of all of this, right? Nuclear brinksmanship, mutually assured destruction. Right. They have thousands of H-bombs still. So do we. Right. You know, hopefully both somewhere south of 10,000, but still enough to kill us all to death over and over and over and over again. To wipe civilization off the earth, if not kill every last person, but essentially make humanity have to start over again like we got hit by an asteroid or something. Level of, of, that's the level of destructive power in the hands of the arsenals of America and Russia. That's real. Okay, like the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs kind of level Mm -hmm. of catastrophe. And um, everybody knows that. And so, therefore, it goes without saying that, like, yeah, of course, everybody knows we have nukes and that's part of the thing. But what happens then is it goes without saying, literally, it goes without being said for so many arguments and plans and discussions in a row that you have these kind of attitudes form around the idea of where our red lines are and where their red lines better not be and what we'll do if they ever try this and all these things as though somehow kind of nukes aren't part of it and that what will really happen is we'll have a conventional war with Russia (laughs) in where Latvia or in Hungary or somewhere like that and then we'll just beat them on the battlefield with tanks and how are we going to get all our tanks there? Anyway, we're going to have our tank. and then, But it, at some point, we have this discussion so much where nukes go without saying that they go without being said. And then these people get to build their fantasies that they could really have a conventional war with Russia. When all you have to do is just say that out loud all the way to the end in, in English and you go, no, that's stupid and wrong. You cannot have a conventional war with Russia. You cannot have a war with Russia. You cannot have a war with Russia. And now look at the reality here. And look, I'm a Texan, okay? I don't give a damn about them. I'm from my own society. Thank you very much. Okay? But that doesn't mean that any of my leaders know what the hell they're doing or mean well. But even if they meant well, that they know what to do correctly. And here's the thing that's probably the most important point anybody made ever is Pat Buchanan talking about NATO expansion in Europe. And he says, listen. You know, NATO isn't a social club here. It's a military alliance. And what we have done here, we used to draw the line halfway across Germany at the Elbe River. Mm -hmm. And we told the commies, if you guys come into western Germany, you're going to have a nuclear war with the USA on your hands, pal. And so you better not do it. And that was the line. Give it or take it, you know, like it or not, that was essentially the deal. Now we have moved that line a thousand miles east we've moved that line now not just to say poland but including the baltic states where there's a strip of land called kaliningrad between poland and the baltic states which still belongs to russia and has nuclear missile station there and we've got a military alliance on both sides of that strip of land (coughs) 
we are way, way, way out of our neighborhood on somebody else's sphere of influence in a way that if the Russians were doing this to us, we would go to nuclear war with them. If they were incorporating all of Latin America and the Caribbean and now trying to do a Nazi coup and overthrow the government of Canada so that they could bring Canada into the Warsaw Pact, mm-hmm. America would go to war over that. There's no question about that. I don't know. We're and, tolerant. And to think that we can do this to them and they just have to sit there and take it. And then whenever they say anything, we just say, yeah, but just look at Vladimir Putin. He's obviously a psychopath. So therefore, his entire point of view has no weight. You don't even need to pay attention to it. Otherwise, you're a Russian bot and you're a purveyor of Russian propaganda and blah, blah, blah. And for how dare you know better? You know, and a great counterfactual for that. I just saw Hillary Clinton today accused a guy of repeating Russian propaganda. Well, you know what? Vladimir Putin opposed Iraq War II. So does that mean if you were good on Iraq War II, then you're just a sock puppet of Russia? Mm. All good American patriots were wrong about Iraq War II. That's still the law, huh? It's still 2004. And if you knew better than still, damn you. And now the new reason for that is because that's what Putin thought too, I guess. Yeah, I got a, I got accused. You know, I got accused of that. Stupid. He was right, and all of us who knew better were right. And all the great American patriots who repeated what the CIA wanted them to think were wrong, and they got a million people killed. Yeah. A million. Yeah. And that's what they're going to keep that up. I mean, I got Russian propaganda. I got accused of that the other day for posting that Yasha Levine article from the gray zone, you know, and I'm like, they're like, he's a Russian. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but he, he left Russia because he like, wasn't in love with the whole idea of Russia. You know, so yeah, it's an like expat living in America, probably for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and of course, this is the same thing with, it's the same thing with Matt Taibbi, too. It's like, hey, I happen to know the first thing about this subject, and you people don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Because he lived there. Right. It's not like he has, and, you know, I think, uh, yeah, they'll tell the story. They got chased out of there. Him and Mark Ames got chased out of Russia by Putin's government. Oh, really? They thought, we better get the hell out of here with this new guy in power. Was uh, There was a real threat to them. Yeah. That's why they left. But they have no love for this guy. It's just that... Russia to them is not a comic book picture in their mind. It's some ridiculous imagination. It's a real place that they know about. And so then all this hype eh, does not compute. Sorry, pal. Right. You'd have to not know anything to believe this stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, that they push about Russia taking over this and Russia starting every fight and Russia hacking our election. You know, I heard him on NPR News uh, just a few weeks ago saying just as a matter of just wrote in the middle of a piece somewhere, it wasn't even the main point. It was Russia's attack on America's election in 2016. Like they can't even say Russia's leaking of the DNC emails, which is still unproven, by the way. Right. They admit that occasionally when they say, which all of our intelligence agencies say, they repeat that over and over. Like, yeah, these are the same people who make a lot of claims, none of which are right, like about how torture works great and helped lead to bin laden like about how uh, torture works great and that's how we know we need to attack iraq because bin laden's guy apparently was trained by saddam and making chemical weapons right you know these guys are the worst liars in the world yeah 
they torture a guy into repeating a lie that all they had to do was like give him a fifty dollar bill. He would have said it. Yep. But okay, so I want to I want to move I want to move a little bit I want to move a little bit further into more American propaganda because we get a lot of this, and so another another aspect of this region that that has been demonized to high heaven is Iran. Now, how it, it we were talking about this before that Iran is is kind of being pushed into. Uh, an alliance with Russia due to American action. And what does that exactly mean for for us as Americans? Well, it doesn't really hurt us. It's a thorn in the side of the American government's attempt to dominate the Middle East, where, you know, every one of their policies, I mean, you can argue... I think the easiest answer is that they're all very short-sighted kind of policies. This is the goal we want to achieve. And then all the other arguments about, yeah, but isn't that going to cause this thing to happen two steps down the line? Don't really get incorporated into it too much. Right. And so you really see things that are you know, very counterproductive policies in a lot of ways. So America's governments, not the American people, none of this is for us. America's government's doctrine is, of course, to continue to hem in Russian and Chinese power. Essentially, they're the only possible near-peer competitors to us in a military or economic sense. Well, one military and the other economic. And this is the old Sino-Soviet split that the Americans refused to admit existed back in the days of the Cold War until the early 70s, when Richard Nixon finally went to exploit it by recognizing China. And he was working on detente with Russia at the same time, too. Mm -hmm. But he was essentially taking the opportunity to use the Chinese against the Russians as well. And, um, you know, to to break their, you know, whatever relationship that they had. And so in the mind of all the strategic thinkers, the worst thing in the world for them would be to have the Russians and the Chinese heal that split and start to get along better again. Right. And you could count Iran in there as well as sort of a middling power, right? They don't have a whole lot of money or military force, but they have a lot of smart power, right? Uh, You know, in terms of their support for different groups around the world who are basically, you know, Hamas, for example. They're no threat to Israel, but they can disrupt whatever it is that the Israelis are trying to do and and so a little bit of chaos uh, whenever necessary, this kind of thing. And, um, you know, and it's just a huge landmass. And it's also, you know, um, I don't know, I guess well, half of well, the, then, the dominant area of Shiite Islam in the world. Then, so they have a lot of influence in that yeah. sense. And so it's important to American imperialists to keep all these countries divided from each other. Right. What they end up doing... Is, in, is embarking on all these policies that are supposed to give America the upper hand that instead only push all our so-called adversaries together again. And so you have, you know, an increasing alliance more and more with the Russians and the Chinese economically and militarily in terms of trade and training and, and different strategic agreements and this kind of thing. And um, we've made Iran heavily dependent on Russia for diplomatic help 
because they have that all-important veto in the UN Security Council, and they could prevent the Americans from completely running roughshod. But that means then that they're greatly dependent on the Russians to make promises, like in the Iran nuclear deal, that they will take the plutonium back home to Russia so that there won't even be the chance that the Iranians could build a reprocessing facility and figure out how to get weapons-grade plutonium out of their uh, nuclear waste, out of their reactors, and this kind of thing. And, you know, anyway, so it's just, um, I, I really should emphasize, the Iranians don't represent a threat to the American people at all. Right. They represent a major uh, kind of uh, Achilles heel in the whole policy of America's dominance in the Middle East. Mm. They were our loyal allies for 25 years after America overthrew the government in 53. <clears throat> and then they had a popular revolution in 79. And we've had an anti a, a overall an antagonistic relationship with them ever since then. They're just too big to be acceptable as independent from American power. And, of course, they also serve as a very useful foil for the Israelis. And any time it's like a, a scientific experiment or something, you just say, yeah, but what about the rights of the poor Palestinian people? And the Israelis immediately will say, what about Iran? What about <laughs> Iran? And change the subject to the terrible threat of radical Islamic terrorism where they lump in our enemies with our enemies' enemies, the Shiite Iranians, mm -hmm. who the Al-Qaeda guys hate. And, you know, again, the Al-Qaeda guys, not again, but people should know, the Al-Qaeda guys attacked us. Not, they weren't from Iran, Iraq, and Syria. They're from Saudi and Egypt, our allied states. Mm -hmm. They hated us because our government, because our government supported their governments. Mm -hmm. And that's why they were targeting us, right. was to disrupt all of that. And so, um, you know, in the, uh, in the, um, but in the scheme of things to the Israelis, they would rather have us preoccupied with the Iranians right. to change the subject from essentially from their colonization of the West Bank, first and foremost. And they're making it impossible for the Palestinians to ever have an independent state there. And um, so, but then America does Iraq War II and also did the half regime change in Syria, both in the name of trying to limit Iranian power and influence, and in both cases, increasing Iranian power and influence. In Iraq, by a million percent, and in Syria, by at least a couple of hundred thousand, <laughs> you know? I mean, the, the Syrians were friendly with the Ayatollah. Now they're completely dependent on him. Yeah. Or not completely, because they have the Russians, but right. still, I mean, greatly. And this also, of course, became the, the war in Syria and the war with the Islamic State that rose up as a result of Obama's Syria policy there mm -hmm. uh, in backing the jihadists against Assad. That then necessitated the return of the Russians to the Middle East for the right. first time in 25 years. Well, and that they moves. They been in any real way. I mean, they still had a naval base in Syria, but they weren't doing a thing with it. They had no influence really anywhere else, no on-the-ground presence anywhere else in the Middle East. And now all of a sudden they're become, you know, deadly necessary to protect the Syrian state from America and Saudi and Israel and Turkey's you know, CIA jihadist suicide bombers there right. in the Syrian war. And so, it, you know, Iraq War II put their guys in power in Baghdad. It, the war in Syria was supposed to kind of ameliorate that by at least taking Damascus away from them, but that didn't work. It just gave <coughs> them even more influence in Damascus. Right. And now on to Yemen, real quick to wrap up, where Saudi launched this war in 2015 
against the Houthi government that had seized power in the capital city there mm-hmm. in the name of the fact that they were Shia. And therefore, that means that they're the cat's paw of Iran. And we can't just let this Hezbollah-like Shiite Iranian terrorist group take over this country. So we got to launch this war. And so America said, fine. Barack Obama said, yeah, let's do it and launch to war. But meanwhile, that meant completely abandoning or virtually, they say they're keeping this up to the smallest degree, but it's really a red herring at this point. It meant essentially abandoning the entire effort. Not that it was a, a good and productive effort. It killed innocent people and created more terrorists. But the effort against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who actually had attacked us, who actually had a role in you know, communicating uh, during the September 11th attack, um, you know, in the time leading up to it, who were part of that, who had attacked the coal, who had done the Charlie Hebdo attack, who had done uh, the attempt of the uh, on the, the underpants bomb of the plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009. This was a real-ass al-Qaeda group that had tried to kill Americans, that the Americans were in the middle of killing, and instead Barack Obama stabbed the Houthis, who had been helping America kill al-Qaeda guys, stabbed them in the back and took al-Qaeda's side against them, and all in the name of Iranian influence there. And now has that defeated the Houthis and driven Iranian influence out of the country? Nope. It's completely empowered their and our enemies, al-Qaeda, to incredible degrees, immeasurable degrees. I mean, boy, the aftermath of that, ask me in 10 years how bad the result of Obama and Trump's policy in Yemen was. And we'll do the, the, a real post-mortem. Um, but uh, all it's done is increase Iran's power and influence in Yemen beyond what it ever was before. They were hardly ever back in the Houthis at all. A little bit of money, a little bit of guns, nothing of any real strategic value. Nothing that made any real difference. But that's begun to change. The Iranians are beginning, beginning to support them more and have now, only now, only this year, 2019, five years, four and a half, almost five years into the war, the Iranians finally recognized the Houthis as the government of Yemen. That just goes to show you how behind their whole thing they were. They actually warned the Houthis not to seize the capital city because you're going to cause the Saudis to freak out and start a war, which is exactly what happened. So they couldn't stop them from seizing the capital city. And then it took them years, four years before they even recognized them as the government of Yemen. So that debunks the whole lie right there. There's a great article uh, in Foreign Policy by Joost Hilterman. It's spelled J-O-O-S-T. Joost Hilterman. And it's called the Houthis are not Hezbollah. Because the Hezbollah, they really are Iran's 51st state there in southern Lebanon. But that's just not the case with the Houthis. And he totally debunks that. And all the real experts have debunked that. And yet the end result, not the end result because it ain't over yet, but the result so far is just like in Iraq and just like in Syria, increased power for al-Qaeda, increased power for their enemies on the Shiite side in Iran and their friends. And... The Americans and all the regular civilians caught in the middle, all the real moderates, not the mythical ones, the real moderates lose all the way around. And people die by the millions in this thing. Right. And I'll tell you, too, let me say one thing more about the war in Yemen. Oh, the war in Yemen is an absolutely horrible, cruel, devastating, deliberate attack on the civilian population of that country. Mm-hmm. Okay, they are deliberately, the strategy is to starve them out. Bomb the water, bomb the sewage, bomb the electricity, bomb the hospitals, bomb the farms, the grain silos, the flocks in the field, all the irrigation systems. 
starve them all into what? Rising up and overthrowing the government that's taken over their capital city. Right. We already know that doesn't work. Look at Iraq War one and a half in the 1990s. Yeah. When Bill Clinton kept them under George Bush's blockade for eight years straight. And the people of Iraq, they had had their chance to rise up and overthrow Saddam and Bush stabbed them in the back and let Saddam keep his attack helicopters and massacre them all. Hmm. And use the MEK cult to run them down with their tanks. And so then Bill Clinton tried to starve the Iraqi people into overthrowing Iraq, into overthrowing Saddam and the Ba'athists, but that could never have worked. Right. And that's the policy now, only hot war, not just, um, you know, sometimes bombing in the Bill Clinton manner. Mm-hmm. But this horrible war, and it is America leading from behind. They call it the Saudi-led coalition. But it's American planes and American bombs and American maintenance and American intelligence and the American Navy the American Air Force doing the refueling of Saudi planes. Yeah. American intel and spies picking the targets. Mm-hmm. This is a U.S. war. America is the superpower. Saudi Arabia is our client state. UAE is our client state. This is America's war, and it is a deliberate war of genocide against a helpless population of poor people who never did anything to us. <coughs> you know, the only ones, the only humanities, again, who attacked us was not the Yemeni government, it was not the Houthis, it was Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. The guys that we're fighting for in this war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. This thing's probably so long, no one wants to hear it anymore. Hey, we, we need to mention uh, Amazon Smile, Benevity, Cyber Grants, Just Giving, and GuideStar. Tell, tell us a little bit about that real quick. Yeah, so, okay, first of all, Amazon Smile is where... Um, the Libertarian Institute is registered. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're registered with Amazon Smile. And that means so that whenever you um, go through smile.amazon.com and choose the Libertarian Institute as your favored nonprofit um, organization there, then we get a little bit of a cut from their end of the sale from whatever you buy there as long as you're on smile.amazon.com and signed up for the Institute. Mm-hmm. And so that's a great way to help support. And then those other things you listed there – are um, Benevity and uh, Just Giving. And let me see, I have the list here. Guide, um, Guide Star and Cyber Grants is what you sent me. Yeah, there you go. So all these are um, they're organizations that essentially are clearing houses for corporations who provide um, matching funds to uh, their employees' donations to nonprofit institutions. So in other words, you take a company like Benevity, what they do is they go to Apple or Verizon or uh, General Motors or whoever, and they say, hey, instead of having an expensive department where you find what charities are acceptable to you, you just come to us and we will only list guys that we have vetted that you can feel comfortable doing matching funds for. And then your employees, when they want to donate to any of these things, you give matching funds and uh, you'll know that it's all right to do so. And so then they do all the vetting themselves. And so that's essentially what all of these things are, is if you have a corporate job and your uh, company has a matching funds type of a function, then um, what you do is you, you uh, I guess, have them check with whichever company they use, Just Giving or Benevity or the others, and see if we're registered with them. And then, like you were just saying, we are. 
So um, that means then you can double all your donations to the Libertarian Institute uh, and make your boss uh, donate to us too. So that's pretty good. And uh, it is our big fun drive, you know, for the from now until the end of the year. We're trying to raise enough money to, you know, really have a great start for the first year of the next decade here and really get the Libertarian Institute off on the right foot and um, and make a stronger institute, better writers, new website, events, new books. Sheldon's working on a book. Thomas Edlam is working on a new Will Grigg book. Mm. I'm working on a book. Um, all these will be coming out in the next year and um, hopefully we'll be doing events and doing everything we can to grow this institute for you and so uh, it's our big fun drive it's right at the top of the page today at libertarianinstitute.org and uh, all the ways at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate and we have books and audio books and all kinds of great uh, gifts and premiums and kickbacks uh, for people who donate as well so that's all at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate, and thanks for letting me say that. Yeah, 